Can you imagine the reaction when this song was released? One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. But you should have Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and his Comets is widely considered to be the song that brought rock and roll into mainstream culture. It spent two months at number one in the US, it reached number one in the UK several times even decades after its release. It was the first rock and roll chart to top both the UK and US charts and it's gone down in history as an absolute classic. In the Rolling Stones 2004 list of the 500 greatest songs of all time, it sits at 159th. You can imagine the fanfare when this was first released in May 1954. You can imagine people going wild. You can imagine crowds filling concert venues. But here's the thing. There wasn't any fanfare. This song wasn't popular. And that wasn't due to lack of trying. Decker, the producers behind the song, mailed thousands of copies of Rock Around the Clock to movie studios and producers. They paid for expensive ads in Billboard and Variety, but the song didn't catch on. The magazine Billboard reviewed the song poorly, calling it a good attempt at cat music and one which should grab a coin in the right locations. Rock Around the Clock sold just 75,000 copies. It's not bad, but it's nowhere near enough to become a classic. By July, it had fell off the Billboard charts and disappeared into obscurity. The world moves on, the rock and roll movement is halted before it's even begun. And that's how the story would have ended, if it wasn't for a movie one year later called Blackboard Jungle, a movie about teenage rebellion that transfixed a generation. It's a movie that started with Richard Dada, the new teacher at North Manual Trades High School, entering an inner city school for the first time and seeing hundreds of kids dancing to this song. According to Jim Dawson, author of Rock Around the Clock, the record that started the rock revolution, the reaction to the movie, and thus the song, was hysterical. In 1955, newspapers reported how university dorms would play a competition to see who could play the song the loudest from their rooms. According to a report in the Philadelphia Inquirer, the movie inspired students to set fire to trash cans while chanting the song. American cities censored the film, while the mayor of Memphis forbade teenagers from watching the movie. All this made Blackboard Jungle more popular, and of course it made Rock Around the Clock a classic. It became a tune that symbolised the rebellious feeling that had gripped the nation. Just three months after the movie aired, Rock Around the Clock became the top-selling single in the United States. It eventually sold more than any song by the Beatles, Madonna, Elvis Presley, or even Michael Jackson. And yet, for a whole 12 months prior to Blackboard Jungle releasing, the song was forgettable. For 12 months, teenagers heard it and concluded it was just fine. For 12 months, the song wasn't a hit. And yet, after Blackboard Jungle, the song was propelled into stardom. Today, we are exploring what makes a song popular. But as I'm quickly discovering, popularity has less to do with objective qualities and much more to do with randomness and chance. All of that coming up after the break. 
The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Rock Around the Clock didn't become a hit because it was objectively good. It became a hit after being featured in a movie which transfixed a generation of teenagers. And Rock Around the Clock isn't the only song that's propelled into fame by chance. The song Royals by Lord was released in November 2012 for free on SoundCloud. The song performed well in New Zealand, but it was hardly heard around the world. That was until Napster co-founder Sean Parker added Royals to his Spotify playlist. Being somewhat of a music influencer, this edition by Sean was picked up by radio hosts, music producers and other influential names within the music space. And thus the song started to generate popularity. Almost one year after launching, the song finally was released in the US and UK, and it eventually sold 10 million units worldwide, making it one of the best-selling singles of all time. But maybe this random success is only the case for some types of music. Both Royals and Rock Around the Clock had a pretty distinctive sound for their time. Perhaps a classic earworm song that sticks in your head would be popular from launch. A song like this. Well, maybe not. See, when Carly Rae Jepsen released Call Me Maybe, it debuted pretty poorly at just 97th in the Canadian Hot 100 chart. It was a small hit in Canada for sure, but it was not a global sensation. That was until Justin Bieber heard the song on the radio and then praised it across social media. In 2012, Bieber made a YouTube video of him, Selena Gomez and several friends with fake moustaches dancing to the song. Bieber called it possibly the catchiest song I've ever heard. And now it is the seventh best-selling digital single of all time and sits alongside Rock Around the Clock on the Rolling Stones top 500 songs. These incredible success stories look less like songs that are destined for greatness and more like lucky chances. Even Justin Bieber himself fits this bill. So So Deaf Recordings, the label that initially signed Bieber, only found him by accident. A marketing executive there was searching for a different singer called Scooter Braun and clicked on Bieber's YouTube video by accident. Justin Bieber began singing for Usher one week later, and the rest is history. Although each of these examples show how chaotic and random success can be, each of them share a common theme. Extreme exposure. Each song received a huge, surprising hit of exposure that propelled the song to greatness. Rock Around the Clock opened the Oscar-nominated, culturally-defining movie of the 50s. Royals was shared by a significant music influencer. Call Me Maybe was shared by arguably the most popular teenager this century. So music, it seems, becomes popular only after exposure. And this idea that exposure leads to popularity has some fairly strong evidence in science. Derek Thompson, in his brilliant book Hitmakers, a book that has inspired much of the content in today's episode, shares how exposure can help kids enjoy food they previously disliked. 
Most children are born with an intense dislike of olives. They are too salty and bitter. But one 1990 study found that it was possible to make young children fall in love with the salty taste of olives by serving them again and again with more pleasant foods. All that is required is 15 repeat servings, and that's enough exposure to make a child like olives. In fact, exposure even makes myths seem more believable. In another study cited in Hitmakers, participants read several dubious assertions, such as shark cartilage is good for arthritis. Just so you know, it is not. And immediately after reading these statements, most participants correctly stated that these statements are untrue. They are myths. But after repeatedly being exposed to this myth over several days, the researchers checked back in and they found that the subjects were far more likely to say that yes, shark cartilage does help with arthritis. Exposure makes these myths more believable. And exposure can even make this podcast seem more popular. A few years back, I ran a study where 200 people were asked, will you listen to this podcast? In the survey, the participants would see an ad for this very show, an ad for Nudge. But there was a twist. One group of participants would just see the standard picture of the ad, which was a a picture of the logo, plus some copy and maybe a few reviews. The second group of participants saw the exact same ad, but this time superimposed onto a billboard in London. It was the same ad, identical in both variants, except one looked like it was on a real billboard. My hypothesis was that this billboard version should trigger the mere exposure effect. By suggesting that my show is popular enough to appear on a billboard, it could make people more likely to listen. So I published a survey, recruited 200 random participants across the UK, and spent a few days collecting the results. And the results confirm really what we already know. After seeing the billboard variant, 7.4% of participants said they would listen to Nudge, but of those who saw the control, only 3.9% said they would listen. Both sets of participants saw the same ad, but one saw the ad superimposed on a billboard, and that made people 90% more likely to listen to this show. Exposure makes a song, and apparently a podcast, more popular. But here's the thing. This cycle, it continues, because once something obtains exposure, it's appreciated a lot more. After this quick break, I'll share how your perception of good music dramatically changes depending on how popular that piece of music appears to be. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Okay, welcome back to Nudge with me, Phil Agnew. So far, we've covered how hit songs aren't destined for success. All too often, it's down to random chances of extreme exposure. 
We've explored research that shows how exposure leads to popularity. But there's another piece to this puzzle. See, when you know a song is popular, you'll perceive it differently. Imagine if I was to play you a song you'd never heard and I asked you what you thought. Well, your response will change if I also told you that this song had been top of the charts for two weeks. Evidence for this comes from research by Duncan Watts and two other researchers at Columbia University. For their study, they created several different music sites. Sites like Spotify, just a lot smaller. They only had 48 songs on. And on the site, they asked visitors to download their favourite songs. So this is fairly simple. Just imagine, like I said, a site like Spotify or iTunes, but only 48 songs on there. And all of these songs are fairly unknown. You wouldn't really recognise any of these songs. But... There was a clever twist in this experiment. Some of the websites showed viewers a ranking of the most popular tracks, but other sites had no popularity rankings. And this meant that the amount of downloads each song would get would would vary very differently depending on what site you were on. In Music Site 1, the top was a song called She Said by the band Parker Theory. However, in Music Site 4, that song was in 10th place. Duncan Watts discovered that the popularity ranking, how popular a song was, directly influenced downloads. Those who could see that a song was popular were far more likely to download that popular song. Thus, a song that gained popularity early on was far more likely to become the most downloaded in the site. The mere existence of popularity rankings made the biggest hits even bigger. In a follow-up experiment, Watts and his fellow researchers got a little cheeky. They inverted the rankings. So on these sites, the least popular song was falsely listed as the number one hit. And you don't have to be a genius to guess what happens next. The previously ignored songs suddenly soared in popularity and the previously popular songs were completely ignored. Simply believing, even wrongly, that a song is popular made participants far more likely to download it. Rankings created superstars, even when those rankings were made up. Now, this is sort of irrational, right? Shouldn't our own internal feelings guide how much we enjoy a song? Shouldn't our enjoyment of something as subjective as music be unique to us? Well, no, it's not. Study after study reveals that we are influenced by the views of others. There is a great study cited in Melina Palmer's book, What Your Employees Want, that shows how irrational this preference for popularity can be. Imagine you see two identical job postings. The only difference is that one says that 50 people have already applied for this job, whereas the other says only five people have applied for this job. Logically, you know you should apply for the job with only five applicants. You have a much better chance of getting that job than the one with far more competition. Or at the very least, you should apply for both. But what do people do? They ignore the identical job with fewer applicants and focus on the job that loads of people had applied to. Professor Sutcher and the MindWork team found that revealing how 50 or more people have applied for a job made the likelihood that someone would submit their CV to that job go up by 138%. Popularity drives our tastes, our actions, and even our humour. Researchers in the mid-2000s found that participants find this joke very funny. Okay. (laughs) No accountants. Oh, and no one from, like, legal. I don't like guys with boring jobs. Oh, and Ross was like, what, a lion tamer? (laughs) However, later in the experiment, after hearing hundreds of different jokes, the participants have played the same joke again, just with this subtle difference. Oh, and no one from, like, legal. 
I don't like guys with boring jobs. Oh, and Ross was like, what, a lion tamer? Now, after hearing this, they say the joke is not funny at all. Why? Well, because the laughing track indicates that others like the joke. If others like the joke, then we should too. We started today's show attempting to figure out what makes a hit song. And unfortunately, I feel like we're no closer to getting an answer. We know that getting exposure makes your song more popular. And we know that a popular song is more likely to be perceived positively. But this isn't advice any of us can follow. Bieber, Lord, Jepsen and Bill Haley, they all got lucky. Their exposure came by chance. And there's no framework each of us can follow to achieve the same success. And there never can be. If there was a framework that anyone could follow, then millions of us would. But millions of people can't become famous pop stars. There's only room for 500 songs in the Rolling Stones' top 500 tracks. As soon as a framework like that works, it would be invalid. Popularity, it seems, is down to an awful lot of luck and random chance. And nothing showcases this better than one final example from the brilliant book, Hitmakers. You'll have heard of Monet's painting, The Water Lily Pond. The world-famous Impressionist painting hangs in the National Gallery in London. And you'll have probably heard of Cezanne, so famous that one of his paintings is priced at $138 million. And yet, just like Rock Around the Clock, these artists only saw success after a fluke bit of exposure. A wealthy fan of Impressionist art named Kaibot bought many of Cezanne's and Monet's paintings throughout his life. Today, his collection would be valued at several billion dollars, but at the time, Kaibot's collection was far less popular. And yet, in his will, Kaibot did something that propelled Cezanne and Monet into the limelight. He stipulated that all of his paintings must hang in the Musée du Luxembourg in Paris. This caused controversy. The French government initially refused to accept the artworks. The French elite, including conservative critics and even prominent politicians, considered the request ludicrous. Several art professors threatened to resign from the School of Arts in France if the state accepted these impressionist paintings, and Jean-Léon Jérôme, one of the most famous academic artists of all time, blasted the donation, saying, for the government to accept such filth, there would have to be a great moral slackening. These impressionist paintings weren't loved, they were hated. But after years of Kaibot's family fighting for this will to be honoured, eventually the artworks were hung in a wing of the museum in 1897. It represented the first ever national exhibition of impressionist art in France, or for that matter in any European country. And because of the much-publicised outcry over Kaibot's will, the public flooded the museum to see art they'd previously ignored. And as you can probably guess, this exposure increased popularity and this popularity changed how people perceived the works. No longer were these pieces of art seen as filth, they are now seen as incredible pieces of art. Now, before you lament this example as being a one-off, then consider this final study by James Cutting at Cornell University. He gathered 166 people from his psychology class and presented them with paired works of Impressionist art. In each pair, one of the paintings was significantly more famous than the other. That is, they were more likely to appear in one of Cornell's university textbooks. Six times out of ten, the majority of the time, the students said they preferred the more famous picture. That's to be expected. Now, this obviously could have meant that those famous paintings are just objectively better, or it might have meant that the Cornell students preferred the art because they were just familiar with those paintings. 
To prove the latter, Cutting had to engineer an example where students were unwittingly but repeatedly exposed to the less famous paintings. So in a separate psychology class, Cutting bombarded his students with obscure artworks from the late 19th century. The students in this second class saw a non-famous Impressionist paintings four times as much as they saw a famous piece of artwork. According to the book Hitmakers, this was Cutting's attempt to reconstruct a parallel universe of art history where unknown works became as famous as Mona Lisa and Starry Night. And finally, at the end of this year, Cutting ran the same experiment again. He asked 151 students to choose their favourite paintings among 51 pairs. The results of this popularity contest turned the original outcome of the first experiment upside down. In 41 of the 51 pairs, the students' preference for the most famous Impressionist works disappeared. Instead of being drawn to Monet's lily ponds or Cezanne's Aix-en-Provence mountains, they were drawn to relatively unknown works that they'd seen time and time again throughout the year in his class. A popular song isn't popular because it's objectively better than other music. No, the world is far too chaotic for totally impartial views like that. Influences, exposure, popularity and culture, all of these things shape our perception. So if you're trying to create a hit, whether that's an impressionist painting or a rock song, what do you do? Honestly, there's no simple answer. There is no framework to follow. The only obvious advice is to remember to at least try. In a world where an unknown pop star can go from releasing YouTube videos in one week to performing with Usher in the next week, and despised artists can create work that sells for the GDP of some small countries a hundred years after their death, the only clear solution here is to just try, to give it a go. Whatever it is you're trying to create, you need to attempt to. Even though the chances are slim, it is better to roll the dice and have a bet than to sit on the sidelines wondering what could have been. If you enjoyed today's episode of Nudge, then you need to go check out Derek Thompson's fantastic book, Hitmakers. Not only did it inspire this episode, with many of today's stories coming straight from the pages of that book, it's also changed my perspective on popularity. It's helped me understand how things go viral, and it's taught me marketing lessons that I wish I'd learnt years earlier. I've left a link to the book in the show notes, so go there if you want to check it out. As always, I'm your host, Phil Agnew. If you enjoyed today's show, please do let me know. Leave me a review. I read them all or send me an email. The best way to do that is to subscribe to my weekly free newsletter. Head to nudgepodcast.com, click newsletter and subscribe. You'll get my personal email address when you subscribe and I respond to every message. So reach out and let me know what you think. Thanks again for listening, folks. Oh, and before you leave, I should ask you to share this show. Knowing what I now know about popularity, this show will only become a hit if it gets exposure. So if you enjoy today's show, write a post about it or send it to some mates. Who knows? Maybe Nigel will become insanely popular 100 years after my death. Or maybe I'll be recording with Usher in two weeks. Stranger things have genuinely happened. Cheers for listening, folks. I'll be back next week with another episode of Nudge.